Psalm 42, for the choir director, a maskeel of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Amen. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, we find our highest joy and our highest delight in you. We are like the psalmist who expressed his love and his desire for you as a deer panting for the water. So our soul pants for you, O God. Our souls thirst for you, for the living God. Father, this is a gift by your grace. We thank you for the transformation of our hearts in such a profound way that instead of resisting you and hating you and rejecting you, we now love you. And we long for you and we delight in you. And we find our joy in you. And yet even in the midst of our pilgrimage in the Christian life, there are those seasons in life by your providence where we become overtaken with tears and sadness and grief and despair and depression. There are times when our souls are disturbed within us. Father, this was the experience of the psalmist, and this too is our experience at times. We thank you for the instruction of this psalm that when we find ourselves in those moments of despair, when our souls are disturbed within us, that we are exhorted to hope in God. That we are to remember that we will again praise you for the help of your presence. We thank you that your loving kindness is upon us. And that your song will be with us in the night. 
and that your presence, O God, is our help. Father, even now we run to you. We confess that we have no other refuge. We confess that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone has the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Father, we thank you that you have the ability to bring joy and rejoicing to the sad heart, to the suffering soul, to your child who is in despair. Father, I commend this congregation to you and to your care, to your love, to your kindness. May you minister to every soul that is here. May you refresh every heart. May you renew our faith. May you strengthen our confidence in you. May you wean us away from our confidence in the flesh, in men, in money, in anything that we can produce. And may our confidence rest securely upon your strong arm and your strong son who is our savior. Father, we thank you for the great hope that we have because of Christ, that he died for our sins, that he suffered and bled and was punished in our place as our substitute, and that he rose again conquering death the devil, and our sin. And therefore we have hope. Father, may you remind us of these things. May you strengthen our hearts with your good hope. May you give us understanding of your word. And as we talk about some very difficult things this morning, some very sensitive things, I pray that you would give us hearts that are tender to you, that are willing to be taught by your word. We again thank you that you are faithful, that you have not left us to ourselves. You have not left us to live our lives in our own strength. You are our strength and our shield. And it is to you that we pray and we ask all of these things in the name and for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our message this morning is going to sound less like a sermon and more like a classroom lecture. We are going to address some very difficult and sensitive matters, matters that need to be addressed when considering the subject of depression. In the world of psychiatry, there is a book that is referred to as the Bible of Psychiatry. This book is called the DSM, the DSM. It stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It is produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and it is currently in its fifth edition as of the year 2013. It is a standard reference in the field of psychiatry and mental health. The DSM is designed to be a tool, it is designed to be a guide for doctors and mental health professionals to help them diagnose and treat mental health disorders like depression. And so how does one know that he or she is depressed? Well, you turn to section 2 in the DSM where the diagnostic criteria of depression are given. And there are nine symptoms that are listed. Let me read them for you. Number one, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. For example, feel sad, empty, hopeless. Number two, Markedly diminished interest in pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. 
Number three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. For example, a change of more than 5% of body weight in a month. Number four, insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. Number five, psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. Number six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Number seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Number eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. And then number nine, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. According to the DSM, if a person has at least one of these symptoms, he or she is in a, quote, depressed mood. And if a person has five or more of these symptoms within the same two-week period, that person has a major depressive disorder, which is also called clinical depression. According to the conventional wisdom of modern-day psychiatry, depression is a disease. And so if you suffer from depression, you are sick. You have a disease. You have a disease that is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, and the conventional treatment for chemical imbalance is psychiatric medication. The vast majority of individuals diagnosed with depression are given psychiatric medication. The technical name for these medications is SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, more commonly known as antidepressants. For example, Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, Lexapro, Paxil, Cymbalta, and others. These medications are so common in our culture today that they are household names. Everybody has heard of Prozac and so forth. From 1995 until 2005, the number of prescriptions for antidepressants in America doubled. It doubled. If you look in your bulletin, we have two sheets this time. We have a lot to cover. The first quote from Dr. Raman Majtabai, who is an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, he says this, it's not only that physicians are prescribing more, the population is demanding more. Feelings of sadness, the stresses of daily life, and relationship problems can all cause feelings of upset or sadness that may be passing and not last long, but Americans have become more and more willing to use medication to address them. We could call this phenomenon the medicating of America. Dr. Thomas Insull, who is a very significant man, he is the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, writing in the year 2011, says this, as these new CDC data show, 11% of Americans aged 12 and older, 3.7% of youth between 12 and 17, report taking antidepressants. And so 11% of Americans take antidepressants. He goes on to say, last year, antidepressants were the second most commonly prescribed medications, right after drugs to lower cholesterol. About 254 million prescriptions were written for them, resulting in nearly $10 billion in costs. And so imagine 254 million prescriptions for antidepressants for a total financial value of $10 billion. In other words, antidepressants is big business. According to Consumer Reports News, 
1999, psychiatric drug makers spent $32 million on consumer advertising. By 2005, that number jumped to $122 million. So in the course of about six years, from $32 million in advertising to $122 million in advertising, antidepressant drug commercials are now a staple of American television, especially on news channel, it seems. I guess the two go hand in hand. If you watch the news, you get depressed, and then comes a commercial for an antidepressant. And so they are in cahoots with one another. That's very clever. According to one news report that I read, Cymbalta was the most prescribed antidepressant in the United States in the year 2013 to 2014. And in a commercial for Cymbalta, a very warm, soothing woman's voice begins to speak. And she says this, when you're depressed, where do you want to go? Nowhere. Who do you feel like seeing? No one. Depression hurts in so many ways. Sadness, loss of interest, anxiety. And then she says, Cymbalta can help. And at that point, the commercial becomes very hopeful. But then it says this. Tell your doctor right away if your depression worsens. This is after taking Cymbalta. You have unusual changes in your behavior or thoughts of suicide. From there, it warns about the further possibility of bleeding risks, severe liver problems, abdominal pain, yellowing of the skin or eyes, high fever, confusion, stiff muscles, a possible life-threatening condition, dizziness, fainting, nausea, dry mouth, and constipation. All of that is on the commercial. And then the commercial ends by saying this, depression hurts, Symbola can help. Really? After all of that list of things that might happen? One of the scary things about psychiatric medications is the side effects. While they are designed to treat depression... They can produce panic attacks, anxiety, restlessness, paranoia, tiredness, weakness, hallucinations, tremors, decreased sex drive, sweating, blurred vision, hair loss, abdominal heart rhythm, and anemia. And these are just the side effects that we know about. We don't know about all of the long-term side effects of these drugs. And so the conventional way of understanding depression from a psychiatric viewpoint is that depression is a disease. It is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, and the best way to treat it is through antidepressant drugs. This is the conventional model. But one of the problems with this conventional approach is that the idea of depression being caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain is only a theory. It is the theory of chemical imbalance. If you look on your bulletin at the quote from Dr. Charles Hodges, he is a Christian medical doctor and a biblical counselor, and he says this very, very critical statement. For the last 50 years, we have been looking for a chemical imbalance in humans that would correlate with the behavior, and we have found none. 50 years they have been looking, and they have been looking hard, and they have not been able to this date find proof. Yet someone might say, but Dr. Hodges is a Bible thumper. Of course, this is what he's going to say. Well, let's consider some others who are not Bible thumpers, like Dr. Thomas Insull, again, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health. He says this, and I quote, there is no biochemical imbalance that we have been able to demonstrate. He's not a Bible thumper. And then Dr. Sherman Newland, who is professor of surgery and historian of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine, he says this, and I quote, it remains anything but certain that clinical depression is in fact caused by a decrease in serotonin. There is no certainty to this. It's just a theory. 
Dr. Newland refers to chemical imbalances as, quote, uncertain gropings for proof of a fanciful theory. He calls it a fanciful theory. And then Dr. Ed Welch, who is a Christian, who is a licensed psychologist and a biblical counselor, he says this, no one can confidently diagnose a chemical imbalance because there is no way to really know. Even if there were a test for it, which there isn't, the test couldn't tell you if the imbalance caused the depression or resulted from it. That's a very good statement. If you want to know if you have a strep throat, there is a medical test for that. If you want to know if a person has diabetes, there is a medical test for that. But there is no medical test for determining if a person is depressed. It doesn't exist. There is no way to validate the diagnosis. So the notion that depression is a disease that is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain is not a medical fact. It is at best a theory, a theory that is on very shaky ground. Another problem with the conventional approach to depression is the effectiveness of antidepressants, or the ineffectiveness, I should say. There is a quote that I have for you from the Washington Post. This is from May 2002. It says this, after thousands of studies, hundreds of millions of prescriptions, and tens of billions of dollars in sales, two things are certain about pills that treat depression. Antidepressants like Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft work, and so do sugar pills. A new analysis has found that in the majority of trials conducted by drug companies in recent decades, sugar pills have done as well or as better than antidepressants. That is what we call the placebo effect. And that is when the patient expects there to be a positive outcome. Sometimes that is what happens. Again, quoting Thomas Insull, he says, the bottom line is that these medications appear to have a relatively small effect in patients broadly classified as having depression. Again, the former National Director of Mental Health. Perhaps the loudest voice of dissent against antidepressant drugs is Dr. Joseph Glenmullen, who is a graduate of Harvard Medical School and who is a clinical instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He has written two books on the harmful side effects of antidepressants. The first book is called Prozac Backlash. It was written back in the year 2000, and he says this from the book, a particularly important element in the success of these medications has been the perception that they are safe and virtually have no side effects. That's not true. They are not safe, and they have very serious side effects. He documents the serious side effects of the medications, including neurological disorders such as disfiguring facial and whole body tics, sexual dysfunction, hallucinations, dizziness, nausea, anxiety, violence, and even suicide. Some people who take antidepressants kill themselves as a side effect. A second book that Dr. Glenn Mullen wrote is called The Antidepressant Solution, written in 2005. And in this book, he warns the public that antidepressants are overprescribed, they are underregulated, and the public misunderstands the seriousness of the side effects and the withdrawal effects. The truth is, antidepressants are dangerous, they can be harmful, and they do not cure depression. They do not cure depression. When someone says they have the cure to a disease, we would expect the numbers of people with that disease to decrease. That's a fair statement. That's logical. There was a time when many people died in our country of tuberculosis, but when a cure for tuberculosis was discovered, the number of people with that disease dramatically reduced. Have you ever met anybody with TB? You just don't hear about it anymore. We don't have a tuberculosis problem in our country anymore because there is a cure for that. But that is not what has happened with depression. Not at all. 
Those being treated for depression between 1987 and 1997 went up by 300%. A dramatic increase, and that trajectory has only continued since 1997, during which time the very same people have been taking antidepressants. The so-called disease of depression has not only not been cured, it has increased dramatically. And so antidepressants do not cure depression. They are only able to treat some of the symptoms of depression, not the real cause of depression, which is ultimately a matter of the heart, of the soul. These drugs do not cure anything. They do not have the power to change what is making a person sad. They may take away some of the symptoms, but the root problem is still there. For example, if a person is depressed because his parents are getting divorced, antidepressants will not change the situation. It will not remove what is making that person sad. There is a book entitled The Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder, written in the year 2007. It was written by two men who work in the field of psychiatry, Alan Horwitz and Jerome Wakefield. And their basic argument is that our culture has made a huge mistake in the way we view sadness. They write in the book, sadness is normal. It is a normal part of life. So when you are sad, you are not sick. You are sad. When you are grieving, you are not sick. You are grieving. When you are depressed, you are not sick. You are just depressed. Sadness, grieving, and depression are a normal part of life. It is not a disease. It is not a sickness. And so for all of these reasons, there is a growing movement in the world of psychiatry away from the conventional approach of depression. Now, in our first two messages in this series, we considered Roman numeral one. In our outline, the reality of spiritual depression. And under this point, we learn that spiritual depression is the reality for God's people, even the most godly of people. And we looked at a number of examples of people who struggle with spiritual depression, like Adoniram Judson, Job, Paul, Arthur Pink, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, the psalmist, and David Brainerd, just to name a few. And now we are considering a second point, Roman numeral two in our outline, the cause of spiritual depression. And we ask the question, what is the cause of spiritual depression? Why is it that we become depressed? Why is it that you at times become depressed? The ultimate answer to that question is this. We become depressed because we live in a fallen world. That is the simple answer. That is the ultimate answer. In a fallen world, depression is a normal experience. It is a normal experience. To suffer is normal in a fallen world, and one of the ways that you and I suffer is the suffering of depression. Some Christians experience depression rarely, Others on a more regular basis, and for others, it is a way of life. It is severe. Martha Peace is a Christian woman who is a nurse and also a biblical counselor. She has written many wonderful things, including a paper on four contributing factors of depression, and I have them listed in your bulletin insert. And number one is physical problems. While we have already demonstrated that depression is not a disease caused by chemical imbalance in the brain, that does not rule out the reality that physical problems can be a contributor to depression. In her list of physical problems that can contribute to depression, she includes the following, exhaustion. When you're exhausted, that can contribute to depression. Illness, such as anemia 
hypoglycemia, hypothyroidism, sleep loss, reaction to medications such as birth control pills, steroids, blood pressure medications, and anti-seizure medicines. All of these and others can contribute to depression. Look at the quote that I have supplied for you by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher from London who began his career as a medical doctor and then became a preacher at the age of 27. He writes this from his book on spiritual depression. Does someone hold the view that as long as you are a Christian, it does not matter what the condition of your body is? Well, you will soon be disillusioned if you believe that. Physical conditions play their part in all this. There are certain physical ailments which tend to promote depression. Take that great preacher who preached in London for nearly 40 years in the last century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the truly great preachers of all time. That great man was subject to spiritual depression, and the main explanation in his case was undoubtedly the fact that he suffered from a gouty condition which finally killed him. You cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical, for we are body, mind, and spirit. The greatest and best Christians, when they are physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than at any other time, and there are great illustrations of this in the Scriptures. And that is very wise insight from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. The mind, the spirit and the body are all intricately connected. What affects one affects all. Now think about he, how Lloyd-Jones ends that quote by talking about illustrations of this in the Scripture. Can you think of any? Think about Matthew chapter 4 when our Lord was tempted by the devil, and when did the devil come to the Lord Jesus but after a period of 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, why does he come at that point in time? Because that is when Jesus would be the most vulnerable. And so there certainly is a connection in physical weakness and our vulnerability to sin and depression. And so why do we suffer depression? Sometimes physical factors do contribute. A second contributor to depression is, number two on our outline, painful circumstances. Painful circumstances. There are many painful circumstances that we experience in life that can contribute to depression. It's experiencing trauma, going through difficult trials, having financial difficulties, are just a few. Depression often results from losing something that is valuable to us, like a loved one or like a friend or like a job. It can result from family tensions. It can result from broken relationships. It can result from fear and anxiety. It can result from Disliking your appearance? Have you had a bad hair day? That is enough to make you depressed. It can result from being rejected. That is a very painful experience. It can result from the pressure to perform, the pressure to succeed, the pressure to make the right decisions, the pressure of being accepted among your peers. It can result from personal failure. It can result from unmet expectations when you expect your life to turn out a certain way and it doesn't. You can fall into the pit of depression. Depression can be seasonal. There are the holiday blues around Christmas. It can be perhaps around the time of the year that you lost a loved one. It can come from getting older and losing physical abilities and losing mental abilities, that is a very difficult thing to deal with. There are a myriad of painful circumstances that can contribute to depression. We saw this in the lives of the examples we've given so far, like Adoniram Judson, Job, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, the psalmist, Arthur Pink, and so forth. All of them suffered depression in part 
because of painful circumstances. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to draw your attention to a painful experience that Paul had to deal with and one that he was really saved from, if you will. Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. Paul writing from Rome as a prisoner, he says in Philippians 2.25, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Verse 26, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And so Epaphroditus apparently fell sick. We don't know exactly what that illness was, but when the church found out about it, it was distressing to them. And then Paul says in verse 27, our key verse, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. In other words, he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, if Epaphroditus had died of his sickness, what would that have resulted in in the life of the Apostle Paul but grief and sorrow upon sorrow? It would have brought into Paul's life a season of depression over losing this fellow worker in the gospel that Paul so deeply loved. Well, there is a third contributor to depression. It is bitterness over wrongs suffered. When you are hurt by someone, and there's a lot of ways that can happen, when you are hurt by someone, you can succumb to bitterness and unforgiveness, which can plunge you into the pit of depression. There are many examples of this in a marriage if there is adultery, if there is divorce, if there is sexual abuse. All of these are very hurtful things that can create bitterness, that can lead one into a state of depression. And then there is a fourth contributor for us to consider. A fourth contributor to depression is personal sin. And by this I am referring to guilt over personal sin, sins that you commit which can lead you into a state of depression. There are so many ways this can happen. You can fail in your responsibilities and that can lead to depression. You can demonstrate sinful anger, perhaps have a pattern of that. That can lead to depression, lying, sexual sin, envy, self-pity, complaining, worry, selfishness, discontent, shame, regret, self-condemnation, etc., etc., all can contribute to depression. We have an example of this in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Let's turn there for just a moment. This is a psalm of David, and he is writing about how there was a time in his life when he had committed personal sin, and he failed to confess that sin. He did not handle his sin properly. And because he failed to confess it, there were consequences of that in his life that led to depression. Psalm 32, 3-5, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Notice how Paul, or not Paul, but David rather, experiences unconfessed sin and how that had an effect upon his body. Remember, we're all connected mind, body, and spirit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
God was disciplining him. God was chastening him. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. And then verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. And so if you commit sin, and if you fail to confess that sin, it can lead you to depression, which can be a consequence of God's discipline, which can even have an impact upon your health, as David says. So there are many contributing factors to depression. There can be physical problems. There can be painful circumstances in life. There can be bitterness over wrong suffered. There can be personal sin that is not confessed. But oftentimes, there is a complexity of factors that contribute to depression rather than it being just one solitary thing. And sometimes, frankly, we may not know why we are depressed. We just are. And we may not be able to trace the line back to the cause. But with that said... Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and this is a very critical statement in his book on spiritual depression. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. It is unbelief. That is the proper diagnosis. In other words, all depression is ultimately a spiritual problem. It goes back to the heart. It goes back to the soul. Now, when Lloyd-Jones says that it is unbelief, it is unbelief in what? Or in whom? It is unbelief in God. It is unbelief in the promises of God. It is unbelief in the Scripture, what the Scripture says to you as a Christian. It is responding to the various causes of depression and failing to believe God in the midst of those things. Ed Welch, in his book on depression, says, Your depression is always and profoundly spiritual. Whenever there is suffering and depression is most surely suffering, there are always questions that we must consider about God and our relationship to Him. And so even if there is a physical cause in your depression, ultimately it becomes a spiritual problem. Ultimately, it is about God and your relationship to God and the condition of your heart. Ed Welch says, so we might uncover some of the reasons for our suffering, but we might never find them all. There is a mystery in suffering, just as there is ultimate mystery at the end of all human investigations. Instead of teaching us how to identify the causes of suffering, Scripture directs us to the God who knows all things and is fully trustworthy. You may not know why you're suffering depression. You may never know. But what does the Bible do? How does the Bible direct you in those times? To God. To the fact that God knows all things and that he is fully trustworthy. And then again, quoting Ed Welch, he says, Therefore, depression, regardless of the causes, is a time to answer the deepest and most important of all questions. Whom will I trust? Whom will I worship? That's great. That's very insightful. And so, beloved, this is where Christian hope comes in. As you struggle with depression... You must never let go of the fact that as a Christian, you have hope. Let's turn to the New Testament and be reminded once again of the great hope that we have as a believing community. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we will begin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. This is a tremendous statement by the Apostle Paul about our former condition, and about our current condition. Ephesians 2, 12, and 13. 
Paul is addressing Gentiles, which would include, I think, everyone in this room. And he says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time, before you were a believer, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a massive statement about the condition of lost people. Anyone who is not in Christ, anyone who has not been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ, Paul says that they are without God in the world and they are without hope. They have no hope. And they do not have God. And then verse 13 begins with one of my favorite words in the Bible. But. But now. In Christ Jesus. You who were formerly were far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. Before you were a Christian. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. But now because of the blood of Christ. You have hope. You have hope. And this changes everything when you deal with depression. Yes, you suffered depression for a myriad of reasons, but at the same time you have a hope. A hope that is rooted in Christ. Another great passage on our hope is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 Paul is having to address here a very distressing situation in the Thessalonian church. How do we handle the major loss of a believer dying? That is a very difficult thing to suffer. And so Paul addresses that here in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. This is a great term that the Bible gives of the believer who dies. It's not that their soul is sleeping. Their soul is with the Lord in heaven. But their body is sleeping in the grave with the hope of resurrection. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Once again, that is a categorical statement about those who are in the world, those who do not know Christ. They have no hope. But would you notice very carefully what Paul is saying here? He's not saying that it's improper to grieve the loss of a fellow believer. That is a time to grieve. It is a time to experience sorrow, as Paul would have experienced in Philippians 2 if Epaphroditus had died. But we grieve, Paul talks about here, in a way that is different as those who have no hope. We grieve in hope. We grieve with hope. We experience suffering, but we do so in a way that clings to hope. And then finally, 1 Peter, 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a suffering church. They are suffering persecution. And if you were to write a letter to a suffering body of believers, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them? How would you instruct them? Well, I love how Peter begins in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. With this tremendous statement, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how does Peter begin to instruct the suffering people? By reminding them of their living hope that they have because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. As Christians, we are characterized as a people who have hope. 
We find this once again in 1 Peter, this time in chapter 3 and verse 15. This is a verse that is really the classic verse of Christian apologetics. But I want you to notice the language of hope that, Paul, that Peter outlines here. Again, writing to a suffering group of believers, he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so here is a group of suffering Christians and yet as the world observes them in their suffering, they notice that they have a hope. And they want to know more about this hope. This is how we as Christians are characterized. We are a people of hope, of gospel hope. Next time we will expand upon our Christian hope as we address the remedy for depression. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given to us a living hope in our new birth through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We thank you that while we are not immune from suffering and even depression, that we do so in a way that is different from the world. We suffer and we grieve with hope. We thank you that Christ is our hope. We thank you that we are not in our former condition, being without hope and without God in the world. Father, we recall the psalmist in Psalm 42 who said, hope in God. Father, I pray that you would teach us to do that, especially in the weeks to come as we address the remedy for depression, I pray that you would cause us to, more than ever before, abound in our hope in God. And that we would experience peace and joy in believing as we fight for faith, as we fight to stand upon the truth of your word. Father, thank you that you are in control of all things, including our suffering. We thank you that there is no meaningless suffering, that whenever you allow us to suffer, you have a purpose in it, and it is a purpose by which you bring about good in our hearts. Father, we don't always understand why we suffer, but we know that you know all things, and we know that you are fully trustworthy. And so it is to you that we submit ourselves entirely. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that we are in him, and we pray this in his name. Amen.